I was, and I'm telling you, it brought me to tears. I don't cry easily, but this, you know, always blows me away. And I wrote a long email like that, and I got it back from my friend, join the club. <laughs> so, there we are. So, if we, the idea is, if we put our mind to making uh, money, there's the danger. And money wasn't the issue, but it's the issue of faith. You know, as well, trusting God to meet that need that's really there. And many of us, it is money. Uh, don't get me wrong. But um, if we put our mind to making money, and you, you, it doesn't have to just be money, but that's what Yeshua is talking about here, we will not serve God. Because he says you can only serve God or mammon. You can't serve both. If you put your mind to serving mammon, material things. Now, he's not saying... Don't make a living. <laughs> you know, he's not saying that. He's not saying go get a job to meet your needs. And I'm not saying those that don't have a job today, it's, it's because you're not going to find a job. Our, our economy is shot. But I, what I'm saying is that um, if we are of the ilk that makes the acquiring of things preeminent, we cannot also serve God. On the other hand, if we put our mind to serving God, he will take care of all our needs. <laughs> so. But the hard part is believing that. I mean, and acting on it, you know. Even if you've attempted to do that for, you know, like 40 years. You know, I said, I'm serving God, man. I'm going to seminary. I'm going to Bible college. I'm going into the ministry. I'm serving God. But, you know, that's a job, too. Unless you're really doing that as unto the Lord. So it doesn't matter what you do. But as much as you say, I'm tr- serving God, I'm serving God, man, this thing bites. And it's the real world, you know. It's not easy. But he says he'll provide. And I have to say, I've always, I've always been provided for. You know, and God was talking to me like that. Look, I've always taken care of this. This has never lacked. Why are you? I said, I don't know. I just can't handle this thing. You know, I just need to know it's taken care of, you know. Anyway. Which only means that lesson's going to prop up again. You know, and I say, this time I'm going to be ready for it. And the Lord says, oh, really? We'll see. Maybe you will be. I hope you will be. He's certainly on my corner. He wants me to be. I really thought I was okay or better, but I wasn't. Or not as much better as I wished I was. Maybe I wasn't as worse as I could have been, but I wasn't as better as I should have been. Anyway. Verses uh, 25 to 34, he talks about anxiety. And maybe that's where I should have put it. It wasn't really money at all. It's anxiety of something else. But in verses 25 to 34, we should not be anxious regarding our basic needs. For God takes care of the basic needs. And he says, he takes care of the basic needs of the birds in the heaven. And he takes care, this is now in verse 26, the basic needs needs of the flowers in the field. So how much more, there's the Kol Vahomer argument, how much more the rabbis, how much more so will he take care of you? You're a person. You're more important than the animals, the birds, even though they're important, you're more important. And even though the flowers in the field are important to God, if they weren't, he wouldn't have set all those things in motion so they do what they do. But we're more important to him. So if he takes care of them, he's going to take care of us. So three things believers can trust God to provide in verse 31. He tells us three things we can trust God to provide for us. 
Now, this is a general principle, not an absolute principle. There are times when these things are not provided. When people have gone through persecution, believers, etc. He's not given a blanket promise that we could turn around and say, hey, where are these things? He's given us a general principle that we can rely upon. And for the most part, uh, nine out of ten believers experience this, right? But first of all, he says he'll provide a roof over our heads. Looking at verse 31, the following. He says he'll provide clothes on our back and he'll, fi- he'll provide food on the table. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be a gourmet French meal. Not that I really like French food. You know, but he will provide. And, you know, more of us than less of us, maybe not in this room, but more of us than less of us could use a diet rather than need more food. So he has provided you know, and you just open your closet. I don't know who I was talking to today because I'm heading east to go get the rest of my stuff. And we were talking about, you know, you think that, oh, it's only going to take a little bit. And the, my realtor guy back there, he said, I said, I'm going to be loading up on Saturday. He goes, man, you got a lot of stuff. I said, no, I don't. He goes, that's what they all say. Wait till you start packing it. And it's like you empty the closet and then there's more and then there's more. And you think, what do I need all these clothes for? But yet he provides the clothes on our back. But that doesn't mean, you know, like, what's her name down in uh, the Philippines that had 25, like, closets of shoes or something like that. 25 is an exaggeration. Maybe it was only 20. Still an exaggeration. Oh, what was it? Mark, Marcos? Marcos. Yeah. So in place of anxiety, Messiah tells us, we're to seek and trust God. And then in verse cha- uh, chapter 7, verses 1 and 6, he gives us a third example, that of judging. Often this passage is misinterpreted to teach that we're not to judge. But other passages instruct us to judge. So we are required to confront believers living in sin. Well, how do you do that if you don't judge? You know? I mean, you've got to evaluate. So that's not what Messiah is talking about. Or how do you deal with matters of church discipline? Congregational discipline. You got to judge. So, you know, Matthew 18. I mean, it's going to come up just in a few sections here. Messiah himself is going to tell us you have something against him, you go to him. And if it can't be resolved there, you bring someone in to do what? To judge. So when he says judge not, he doesn't mean do not judge at all. But the only criteria for judging should be the Bible. We should not use man-made standards for judgment, which is what Messiah is trying to address. The pharisaical oral tradition is inadequate for true righteousness on all of these scores. And it's inadequate here. We need to evaluate others when necessary by the scripture and not by our personal preferences or personal desires or what we'd like to see. What does the Bible have to say? So we have to approach it with a great humility so that we're understanding God's word in the process of dealing with conflict or issues, discrepancies, differences of uh, feelings about things. In verses 7 to 11, he deals, Matthew, okay, we're staying with Matthew, uh, 7 to 11, he deals with prayer again. Here he says, ask, seek, and knock. In the Greek, it's in the present tense, so it means keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. So you say, well, wait a minute, didn't he tell us not to be engaged in vain repetition? But here's the difference. He's not saying that we should be mantra-like. You know, that we keep repeating the same line, same line, same line. You know, it's almost like praying rosaries or praying of the Islamic beads or whatever they do. You know, constantly just 
and thinking that if we repeat vain repetitions that they will somehow click for God and they just can't seem to get through to him on the first one. That's not what he's talking about. Here he's talking about when we are burdened for something. It is not only permissible to keep bringing that burden before the Lord, but he's encouraging it. In other words, there's nothing wrong with being persistent about something in our prayer life. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Because that keeping onness is a reflection of our trust. And an expression of our desire. Now, that doesn't mean God says, okay, I'm going to do it now. You know, It only means that we trust you and we're burdened by this. And it's up to God to decide how um, he deals with things. Paul said three times, for him, I guess that's a lot. Three times he asked the Lord to remove this thing. The Lord said, look, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, it would be nice if God would give us that same statement as clearly as he gave it to Paul. But he doesn't. And I'm sure there were other statements he didn't give to Paul either. But that was one he did give to him. But that becomes instructive for all of us, doesn't it? You t- you, uh, you, hmm. Are you? Tell me more about this. Uh, you talk about the loaves. They, No, no. Well, you, you know, I preached on that passage, but now I got to go look and, and reflect back. But uh, so you're hitting me with things like, okay, how does that fit into this thing? But the focus on that parable really is the need of the woman, not the persistence, right? Isn't that what you just said? Yeah, but I don't know who the church represents. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I'm uh, let me uh, let me just back up on on that in saying that these parables, not every facet of the parable, is meant necessarily to to be symbolizing something. Now, I'm not suggesting that doesn't symbolize God. I, I'm just not looking. I'm just saying that perhaps when I'm just thinking perhaps this, the pa- purpose of that parable is to focus on the need even though there are other things going on that we might tend to focus on but not what the issue he's trying to draw our attention. In other words, he could have drawn any scenario. It happens to be that so as to maybe accentuate the need that's there which ultimately is met. Not so much it's met because of the persistence, but met because of the need. Maybe. But I have to look at it, so I don't want to say anything too um, uh, dogmatic there. Yeah. 
Um, well, the only problem with that is we just don't know. Because God could answer that prayer, not on the fifth prayer, but on the 55th. I mean, we just don't, it's hard to anticipate that. But if we take Yeshua's words here as he presents them to us, he's certainly telling us there's nothing wrong. And in fact, it would be encouraged to be persistent. Keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. But there's no guarantee. Uh, He's not saying, and then the Lord will do this, that, or the other. Yeah, those are, you know, those are subjective experiences of one kind. But if we get back to the, yeah, but if we get back to the text, it's just not addressing that. You know what I mean? And certainly, we, it, that being the case, and again, when we get there, we'll be able to spend more time. But in the book of Revelation, you have in heaven the souls of individuals crying out to God for justice. But they're in heaven doing that. So uh, it's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, in that regard. But it does seem to be, and he says, will he find faith on the earth? How would faith on the earth be shown? By the persistent pray, prayers of his people for justice to occur. Okay, but let's go on here so we can finish it up and get out at a reasonable time. Um, So we want to keep on asking. Then in verse 12, we have one statement which is the core of the practice of true righteousness. All things, therefore, whatsoever you would do, men should do unto you. uh, Whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, even so do you also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So this is the core for the practice of true righteousness. By the way, this is very much like Hillel, who was one of the Tanaim, perhaps one of the greatest rabbis of all time. He lived like 110 B.C., until 10 of the common era. So he dies when Yeshua is probably five years old or so. And a couple of comments of that are his. One is this. If He said this, and, you, and you'll remember this. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? And when I am for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Yeah, that's a, that's a last statement. And then the other is, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. I'll go and learn. It was to Hillel. Oh, the story is told that a uh, 
a Gentile had come to Rabbi Shammai, and Shammai and, and Hillel were sort of antagonists. Um, they had different perspectives on things, sort of like Calvin and Arminius, you know, or Augustine and Pelagius. Uh, so they're, they're just two opposite sides. And so one Gentile comes to Shammai and says, uh, if you could teach me the whole law while standing on one leg, I will convert to Judaism. And Rabbi Shammai says, you know, go away. You cannot be taught the law in such a short amount of time. Then he goes to Hillel. And he says to Hillel, if you can teach me the law while standing on one leg, I'll convert to, to the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he lifted up his leg. And he said, do not, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellows. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Now go and learn. Yeah, so that kind of puts it in perspective. And you know when you go to Israel, did you go to Israel, Michelle? You know when you stood outside the menorah and there's carvings in there? There, One of the carvings is Hillel standing on one leg with a man next to him. You know, It's like capture, capturing images of important moments in Jewish history. So Yeshua's statement is just like that, but just the opposite which is do to others what you want people to do to you, and even if they don't do it for you, do it unto others. In the, and in this way, it uh, fulfills or the actions, they, this kind of actions, they summarize the law and the prophets. Uh, if we keep our commandments to God, we'll keep our commitments to others, is uh, in essence what is what is being communicated. And then in verses 13 through 27, I just want to get through, 13 through 27, he gives us some warnings concerning true righteousness. He concludes his message um, on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, by utilizing four different pairs to compare and contrast. Righteousness, this is what the whole thing is, the nature of true righteousness, remember, the kind of righteousness that's needed for the kingdom, enter the kingdom of heaven, is so essential. It cannot be this pharisaical righteousness. It must be the righteousness I can give you that he ends his sermon on true righteousness by showing two pairs, by giving four pairs as object lessons. He says there are, first of all, verses 13 and 14, two ways. There is the wide way. The broad way that leads to destruction. It's broad because the Pharisees taught all Jews have a share in the world to come. Abraham sits at the gate of Gehenna making sure that no Jew enters Gehenna who, uh, who, should not, who is not consigned there. He makes sure that no Jews get there because all Jews are going to go to heaven. He's saying that is the broad way of Pharisaical Judaism that will lead to destruction. The narrow way is that way which recognizes the standard of righteousness in the law, which cannot be met by our own efforts and can only be um, fulfilled by accepting Yeshua as the Messianic King. Those that follow the broad way, that says all Israel has a share in the world to come, will not enter the world to come. Those that follow the narrow way, that recognize Messiah has come to fulfill the law, not destroy it, will find themselves entering the kingdom of heaven. Two ways, the broad and the narrow. The narrow is the following of Messiah. The broad is thinking that we can do it through 
pharisaical oral tradition. Secondly, he says there are two trees in verses 15 through 20. He says, ultimately, one cannot tell the uh, righteous from the unrighteous. We really can't see faith in anyone. But we can see the fruit of individuals who have or do not have faith. The fruitless tree is the sign of a false prophet. There's no fruit in the individual life. But the fruitful tree refers to those who attain true righteousness of the law and the prophets through Messiah. And as a a result, they will manifest those blessed things, those happy things of the Beatitudes. They will mourn. They will hunger and thirst. They will be peacemakers. They will be merciful. They will be persecuted, etc. So the fruitless tree is the tree in which individuals may think they're doing right things through these legalistic mechanisms and these pharisaical traditions, but in reality, they're not having any fruit. The fruitful tree are those that look to Messiah to provide righteousness for them, and they manifest true righteousness. Then he says in verses 21 and 23, there are two professions. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is a believer. Notice that phrase comes up two times here in verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse uh, 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? So profession is not enough. Not everyone who says Lord is going to enter into uh, heaven. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord is a believer. But note what they accomplished. This is kind of scary in a way. He says they accomplished the following three things. They prophesied things that came to pass. So prophecy is no indication, no indicator that the individual is really of God. Because they pro- Messiah said they prophesied in his name. And thus things came to pass. They said they cast out demons. Not everybody we see casting out demons knows God. Don't think that just because demons are cast out, oh, they must be of God. They're doing it in Yeshua's name. He says many will do that and say, Lord, Lord, and they are not. They don't know me. He says many of them did mighty works, even works of healings. And he says that's not a guarantee, even in my name. Yeshua says, yet I never knew knew you. They were not believers to begin with. He never knew them. We're not talking about people who knew him and somehow walked away from him but kept the power or something. The mere presence of supernatural manifestations does not prove it is of God. So it's very important that we don't get sucked in to experience The existence of miracles does not prove it's a work of God. Keep in mind, even Satan can duplicate many of the things God does, and we see it. Moses, for example, turned water to blood. So did the the, uh, magicians of the Egyptians. Moses made frogs come from the dust of the ground. So did the magicians. Now, while Satan can duplicate, he can't correct. So he couldn't make the blood water. But he can make more blood. He couldn't make less frogs. He can only make more frogs. So he can duplicate, but he can't correct things. Not that he would want to anyway. It's not as if he wanted to make life easier for the Egyptians either. He hates everyone. He's a murderer from the beginning. 
The Egyptians may have thought Satan was on their side like many witches and so on in our own day do, but he's not. He is pleased to harm them as well, even if they think he's helping them. But the point is, is that here is the issue Messiah is telling us. It's what one does supernaturally, whether healing or not, what one prophesies, what one casts out is not the determining factor. What is the determining factor? He tells us the determining factor is the Word of God. The, the presence of false uh, teachers and workers, etc., were false because they did not conform to the Word of God. That is what must be preeminent. And that's why it is so critical to study God's Word and to make sure that what we do do, even under um, good intentions, is done in accordance with God's Word because then otherwise it is not pleasing to Him. That's the point of true righteousness. It can't be redefined, as the rabbis would like to say. Murder is killing a guy but not having animosity. Well, it doesn't please God to do miracles, but not in the way that God intends them to be done. And the doing of miracles and the performing of miracles or casting out of demons or otherwise is no indication that it is of God unless it, it, it is truly in the conformity to the Word of God. And so it's important we understand God's Word because there are many that misinterpret God's Word so that their experiences are justified and seemingly by the Word of God. Therefore, Paul says... Rightly divide the word of truth. So, um, false teachers stress the external manifestations. True teachers will stress how consistent the experience is with the word of God. And then he concludes with uh, the final pair, the two buildings. He closes the Sermon on the Mount by giving his hearers a choice. They can build their house, which is to say their life, on either the foundation of sand or they can choose to build their life on the foundation of a rock, which is Messiah's interpretation of the true righteousness of the law. The sand is the pharisaical interpretation of the law. It will not stand up to the test of time, the storms of time, or the judgment of God. But Messiah's interpretation of true righteousness will stand up to all the storms of life and will stand up to the scrutiny of God himself because he will and has fulfilled the law to the very jot and tittle which fulfillment he will grant to us. But if we don't go that road, then we're going a road that will only be a road built on sand which will not stand when we need to stand before God. Well, next time, um, we will look at section 55, which brings us to his recognition of authority in Capernaum. And then that will be like the middle of May or so, and then we can talk about what we want to do through the summer. Um, You know, we can take a break and then pick it back up in the fall, because then we're into June, or we can go part of June. (laughs) <laughs> whatever you guys want to do, I'm happy to do it, believe me. Uh, but I don't want 
I don't want to impose on you either as the summer starts coming our way. It's amazing to think the summer's coming. You know, within a month will be a year when we first came here. June 5th was when we first came. And, of course, September will be, we'll be here one year. I can't believe that. I can't believe I'm in California. It's kind of crazy and wacko itself, you know. But it's good to be here. Don't get me wrong. It's just kind of weird, you know. <laughs> it's like the other side of the world. Don't you th- didn't you feel that way, Mitch, when you were here for like the first year? It's like, what the heck am I doing here? You know, where's the Hudson? Where's the Parkway? Where's the Garden State? <laughs> where's pastrami? Yeah. There's the East Road. That's New York. But. Well, listen, let me pray for you all. And if you need to leave, that's fine. If you have any questions, uh, I'll ha- be here for a little bit and we can chat. Father, we thank you for this day and we are grateful for our evening together. Thank you for your word and for unfolding it to us. Help us, Lord, to understand as we reflect on the things that uh, we went over tonight. And uh, may we indeed build our lives on the firm foundation, the rock of Messiah, who has fulfilled the law in our behalf. May we rejoice in that and live a life that is worthy of it as well. For we pray in Yeshua's name.